Well, good morning, boys and girls. How's everybody doing this morning? Listen, how can you not be doing anything but great, right? I, what an absolutely magnificent day. Uh, man, I'm telling you, there's just, coming out here, you know, Jerry just said we got back from Israel about a week ago, and he's mentioned the weather. He said, go when he goes because the weather's good. Yeah, when we go, and the reason we go typically in the summer is this, this year I had like 10 teenagers. And so we got parents who want to take their kids. And so you got to wait till June. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, uh, you know, the first few days there, even up in the Galilee, uh, the straight temperature was 103, 104 degrees. It's a dry heat, though. Uh, but, boy, it's still hot. And... Uh, so, yeah, I, I've been in November, I've been in April. Uh, every time I go, and I'm, I'm like, oh, man, I remember, I remember those, those times that you go. It, the great temperatures there. But, uh, but it is, I'm kind of jet-lagging a little bit. So if I pause, it's not for effect. It's because I've lost my place still. I'm still uh, trying to recover. Uh, we're going to have some slides, hopefully, to kind of help walk us through this. They're looking for a clicker for me. If they don't find it, that's okay. Uh, and I know I, I, I know I can give the sign to them, but it it might be you know it might be even best if we don't get the clicker. That's that I just we can we can handle it without it. We can handle it without it. But uh, uh, see, I'm pausing. I'm lost again. There, there it is. I told you that's what it is. It's a, a combination of the jet lag and everything. But I wanted to talk this week, and what we're going to do today, what we're going to do the next three days, is we're going to talk a little bit about the Bible. And uh, let me tell you why this is a topic that is really near and dear to me at the moment. And that is because there's probably never been a time in our history that has uh, where the Bible has been under attack more. There, there are more people that are trying to undermine the integrity of Scripture, undermine the Bible, than ever before. Uh, there, there was a time not too long ago, and I'm sure you remember this time, whenever you could sit down, if a door of opportunity opened with somebody and you could talk about Jesus and, and talk about the Bible, you know, here's how I normally, here's how I used to start Bible studies. I would say, now listen, I, I'm going to ask you a question I think I know the answer. In fact, I'm pretty sure I know the answer. But, but just to make sure, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you the question. And that is, do you believe that the Bible is literally the Word of God? That it's a God book? And, you know, it wasn't too long ago that anyone that I sat down with, almost anyone, they would go, oh, oh yeah. And so, you know, boom, foundation is laid now you can just jump into things because they think they're looking at a God book just like I think I'm looking at a God book. Well, those days are past. Uh, increasingly, when I had Bible studies with someone, and there was a young lady that I had a study with uh, for a series of weeks. Uh, it ended probably about six weeks ago. Uh, but but I, it started with a question. Now, let me... Let me let's find out where we're both at in terms of uh, in terms of the Bible. Uh, you know, do you believe that the Bible is a God book that God somehow supervised the writers of this book 
so that when they wrote, when they dipped their quills into the ink and they put their quill on the parchment or the papyrus or whatever, uh, do you believe that God was supervising them in such a way that, uh, that the words those men wrote were the actual words that God wanted written? Do you believe that? And yeah, uh, and her answer was though, I don't know. You know, ours is absolutely, because that's what we believe. But increasingly, this, this is, this is kind of where you get when you're engaging with people, uh, because increasingly more and more people, they don't have the, the spiritual background and the church going background that, that most Americans once had. Uh, you know, uh, you probably know this. Increasingly, the percentage of people who identify themselves as a nun, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E, when it comes to spiritual matters, what do you affiliate with? More and more people are saying, well, none. I don't have any kind of, of religious affiliation. Well, that's just going to increase. That's not going to start backtracking. That's just going to become more and more prominent. And so... Uh, uh, so we're going to be faced with more and more people who come to the table for study, and they're going to answer, well, I, don't, I really don't know if it's a God book or not. Okay, now let me pause here and make sure I got the mechanics right. I'm going to assume that it's the button on the right-hand side that is advanced, right? And the one on the left, and the one below... And the one on top. Well, at least the laser works. Uh, do what now? Okay. Hey, let's not even sweat it. Let's not even sweat it. Let's wing it this morning. And I will, even if I don't remember something, I'll talk with such confidence, you'll think that I am spot on my notes. Uh, you know, I'll fake it. Because, see, I haven't written about this stuff, so you can't check me out in the book. Now, the problem is a lot of people have written on this stuff. There's a lot of great stuff out there uh, about can you trust the Bible so you can check me out on it. Uh, so we'll just kind of go without it. Oh, something. Oh, well, no, that's, we, yeah. Okay, let's go on. Um, okay, so this is kind of where we're at in our culture. We are in an increasingly unbelieving culture, and we are increasingly dealing with people who answer the question when they're being really, uh, uh, honest with them in the moment. They'll say, but I really don't know. Uh, I, I remember uh, uh, teaching one time a guy, he was probably in his 50s, pilot for Northwestern, uh, Northwest. And, uh, you know, he used to fly the big heavies overseas and everything. And his wife was a Christian and his daughters were Christians. And, and he, he came to church with him on a pretty regular basis, but uh, he never obeyed the gospel. And and, and I, again, I remember I was sitting down with him and saying, now, Gunnar, let me ask you this question before we get started so I'll know where to start. And do you believe that the Bible is a God book? And he goes, Dan, I just really don't know. So again, that is what we're going to encounter more and more and more and more. So we need to have some competency in dealing with the, uh, uh, the Scriptures, not just the content of the Scriptures, but the question that becomes that comes before the content of the scriptures, and that is, is it what it claims to be? Because that's what it does claim to be. Second Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. All scripture is what does it say? All scripture is. Oh, there it is. 
all scripture is breathed out by God, literally. Some translations say all scripture uh, is inspired, but literally it means breathed out by God. And so it's making an incredible statement about the nature of scripture. It is, and the word that you've heard me use over and over and over again already is that it is a God book. And as I said, uh, it is a statement when you combine this statement with other statements that we find in scripture Uh, It is a statement that God somehow, through his spirit, supervised all these writers so that the words they wrote were the actual words that God wanted written. So that's the claim of the Bible, that it is a God book, that God is the ultimate author. And so uh, increasingly then, we're going to have to deal with, is there anything there that supports that claim? And, uh, And the answer to that is, yeah. And so when people say to me, like Gunnar said to me, or when Bobby Joe said to me, or when other people say to me, Dan, I really just don't know if it's a God book or not. I say, okay, that's okay. I know where to begin now. And what I want to do for the next, I don't know, few sessions together, I say, I want to convince you that it is a God book, that it is what it claims to be. I absolutely believe with every ounce of my being that it is what it claims to be. And I, uh, and I believe the evidence is pretty overwhelming. There's not just evidence that supports the Bible's claim that it came from an all-knowing God, but I think there's a whole bunch of that evidence. Now, what we can do when we talk about evidence, and this isn't what we're really going to do today. I really want to get past this and get to another important question, and that is how do we know that the Bible has been reliably preserved? We'll get there in a minute. But let me just kind of review uh, some of the evidence that's out there uh, for the claims that, the, to support the claim that it's a God book. Uh, one is the precision historical accuracy of Scripture. You know, if the Bible really is a God book, then uh, it better be free from error. If, if an all-knowing, perfect God is the author of Scripture, then it better be right in everything that we can empirically investigate. Matters like history, matters like science, matters like geography, it better be accurate. Because if it's not accurate in matters that we can empirically investigate, you know, how in the world can you trust it in matters that you can't empirically investigate? Like Jesus is fully God and fully man, and you are in sin. And as a sinner, you are separated from God. And the penalty for that is an eternity in a Christless hell. And that Jesus went to the cross and that God took all of your sins and he piled it on Christ. And then he proceeded to pour out all of his holy wrath that your sins deserve on Christ. So that in Christ, God can look at you and say, no penalty for you in the clear. Now, how can we believe that kind of stuff? Because we can't empirically investigate that. How can we believe that? if the things that we can empirically investigate are wrong. Well, one of the things that we do, and this is one of the places that I always begin, is showing the incredible historical accuracy of Scripture. Now, that doesn't prove the Bible is a God book, but it does prove that the Bible is incredibly historically accurate. And if the Bible really is a God book, then when it speaks about history and geography and those things, it better be precisely accurate. Well, in our trip to Israel, Jerry, I don't know, you've told me about your guide before. We had a guide. It was a new guide for me this time. His name was Saeed, and Saeed is an Arab Christian, and he lives in East Jerusalem. Uh, he's a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and, uh, but 
As, as I got to know Saeed, and as Saeed would speak in place, and, and Saeed is the guide. He would have a lot of information, a lot of great historical information. And then uh, what I typically do when I'm there is at, at the sites, and then he turns the microphone over to me, and, and we do devotional studies, and I kind of pull, pull the text together with the location and, and really expand and expound on that. But while he would be lecturing at times, it became very clear to me that he did not have the same high view of Scripture that we have. You know, there's a lot of Bible-believing people who aren't Bible-believing people like you are. Uh, there are a lot of people who profess to be Christian and, and profess to have an elevated view of Scripture, but in reality, they don't believe that it is a God book and, uh, and that the Holy Spirit, again, they supervised the writers to make sure that everything they wrote was exactly what God was written. They don't have that view of Scripture. And some of that was coming through, like, for instance, we were about to go through Hezekiah's tunnel. It's one of the great things. Y'all go through Hezekiah's tunnel. It's a great, it goes from the Gihon Spring, and it, and it comes, it's about 1,800 foot, about a third of a mile, you're walking under the bedrock of Jerusalem, and it was carved out by King Hezekiah's engineers as they were anticipating Sennacherib coming and uh, uh, Sennacherib was in, involved in an invasion of Judah. And, uh, and we won't get into all those details, but, but the text tells us when Sennacherib came to Jerusalem that the reason he wasn't able to take Jerusalem was because God intervened. And God intervened, it, it intervened by wiping out a large chunk of his army. So he wakes up the next day, and a lot of the Assyrians are just littering the fields, dead bodies around Jerusalem. So Sennacherib packs up, and he goes home to Assyria. Well, as we're about to go into Hezekiah's tunnel, we're in the city of David, which is where you go to get access into Hezekiah's tunnel. He's kind of briefing us kind of on the history of the place. And, and he mentions that account in Scripture. And he says, and I know the Scripture says this, but, but here's what really happened. And uh, what really happened was uh, he got word that there was kind of some, you know, rumblings of rebellion back home. And, and so he had to get back home as quick as he could because, you know, things are at stake there. While he's gone, you know, the cat's away, the mice are going to be playing. And so, uh, so his kingdom has some, uh, some, some operatives back home who are trying to take the throne from him. And he said, wow, okay, I got to go. And he packed up and headed home. And I just thought, and of course, later on when I would get the opportunities out of earshot of Saeed, of course, because I didn't want to needlessly embarrass him. That wouldn't have helped anything. But uh, I would explain, uh, Saeed doesn't have the same view of Scripture that we do. What I'd like to do is ask him this question. Saeed, how, how can you believe all the spiritual stuff in Scripture if you think that the, the scriptural, the, 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 the Bible writers is they're reporting history and they're reporting geogra geography and geographical matters and as they're speaking to those things and they get it wrong. How can you have confidence that they get it right when you speak in historical matters or when they speak in spiritual matters? So, listen, this is where I began. When we're talking about how do we know that the Bible is a God book? Well, it better have the fingerprints all over it of God. And one of those fingerprints is incredibly precise historical accuracy. Let me just give you a couple real quick. Uh, the Hittites. You know, we read about the Hittites in Scripture. In fact, one of David's mighty men, one of his top 30, was a man by the name of Uriah. You remember Uriah, right? 
David ends up murdering him after he steals his wife. And uh, so you read about the Hittites in the Old Testament. Well, for, for years, for centuries, scholars said, well, there's no such people as Hittites. Uh, and the reason that they came to that conclusion was really simple. Outside of the Bible, there was just no evidence of an empire called the Hittite Empire. And so their conclusion, scholars who didn't have a biblical worldview, uh, their conclusion was that, well, you know, this is all part of this biblical narrative. It's a lot of fantasy. It's a lot of fiction. There was never really any empire called the Hittites. And then 1906 happened, just about 100 years ago. And, and in the, the modern country of Turkey, a German archaeologist dug up the capital of an ancient empire called the Hittites. And as he dug it up, they found a city library there that had thousands upon thousands of clay tablets that recorded the history of the Hittites. And now you can go to certain schools and you can learn Hittite. Uh, that, that's just an example of the historical accuracy of Scripture. Take David. I've been mentioning the city of David. And uh, here's another uh, one aspect of Scripture that scholars used to always point to, point to. That is scholars who didn't have a biblical worldview. And they would go, nah, that's just fiction. King David. And they would say, uh, there, was nobody, there was nobody named King David. Uh, because nowhere outside of Scripture do you have a reference to him. If there was anybody this grand and this great and this powerful, there would really be some kind of reference outside of the Bible to him as a person. And so he probably didn't really exist. He's kind of like King Arthur. Not, not, not real, just a, a, fictional, uh, a, a fictional part of, of, Jew, of Jewish mythology. Well, and then 1993 happened. And in 1993, I mean, a bombshell, an archaeological bombshell was dropped. It was such big news that it even made the front page of the New York Times. And that is while they were excavating in the city of Dan in northern Galilee, they found a piece of a broken monument. And it came from 8th, 9th century, probably the king of Damascus. Uh, and he was bragging about his victory over the... House of Israel and the house of David. And so suddenly David's dynasty could no longer be denied. And they had to acknowledge, okay, so he was a real guy. And uh, the Bible's right about that. But then they would say this. Well, but he wasn't the kind of king that you read about in Scripture. Well, he wasn't that. You know, this this king of this fortified empire. He was more of a, of, a, of a chieftain that lived around the Jerusalem area, no fortified cities, nothing like that. We know that for a fact because there are no fortified cities from the time of David. I mean, that, that's, just a, that's just kind of, a, a, again, a Jewish myth. Well, in 2007, I mean, we're talking about just 11 years ago, they started to excavate this town. It's called Kirbek Kayafa. Um, uh, you haven't been to Kirbek Kayafa. I'm sure you haven't been. Nobody goes to Kirbek Kayafa because you can't go there, really. Uh, if you have, tell me afterwards. But uh, think about it. It's, uh, what it is, 
it, uh, it, was, it was really found and started to be excavated 11 years ago. Someday, I'm sure, they'll have the infrastructure to where groups can go back, but they don't now. I wanted to go a couple of years ago in 2016 when I took a group, and you have to rent four-by-fours uh, to get back to the site. And, um, and so this year, I tried it again. We weren't going to rent four-by-fours, and so uh, this year again, I said, hey, I want to go to Kirbeck Kaiafa. And so they said, okay, you can go to Kirbat Kaiafa. Well, my guy had never been to Kirbat Kaiafa. The driver had never been to Kirbat Kaiafa. Nobody goes to Kirbat Kaiafa. In fact, two days before he met us at the airport, he had to go looking for Kirbat Kaiafa. And, uh, and so he found it. And, and we got back to it. Now, when we, when we go over there, and some of you have been over there, when we go over there, we had these big, wonderful motor coaches, touring coaches. And our driver starts going back. He takes this turn off into these farm fields. And so he has to, it's a little dirt track with this massive motor coach. And this is a little dirt track. In some places he can't get up through. And so he has to go down into the fields and he has to drive through the edge of the fields. And then he'll come back up on the dirt road. And we have to wait for the shepherd to get all of his sheep off the dirt road. And, you know, then it's scraping the sides, the branches. And it's like, oh man, I can't believe he's going back here. By the way, after he got, got us back there and got us out, which was a real question, man, I had some, you know, I'm, I have the tip money that I give tips to, uh, oh, I pulled out an extra $50 on the spot and said, thank you, Farid, uh, for getting us back here. Well, what's Kirbek Kaiafa? It overlooks the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is where David and Goliath uh, had their big battle. And, uh, and so we got back there. And we went up onto the site. Now, the interesting thing about Kirbet Kaiafa is this, and it all ties into this notion that scholars have said, oh, the Bible's reporting that David was the king of this great big empire is simply wrong. He was just this shepherd chieftain over a little small area in Jerusalem because there weren't any fortified cities during David's time. Well, that's what this is. It's 20 miles away from Jerusalem there on the Valley of Elah, and it is an Israelite city. And that Israelite city, we know it's an Israelite city because of, first of all, just the layout of the city. Uh, the walls of it are what they call casemate walls, two parallel walls. And they fill those in with dirt and rock and all in case there was an attack to strengthen the walls. Uh, well, that's Israelite. As they excavated the bones and the remains of things, there were no pig bones. And we know because there were no pig bones, it was, again, a Jewish fortified city. And so suddenly now, scholars, okay... And it is from the time of David, and it is a massive fortified city from David's time. Okay, the Bible's right. By the way, here's an interesting thing about that and why I love it. We did teaching on David and Goliath uh, from that city as we're overlooking it. Uh, the interesting thing about this particular city is it has two gates. There's a south gate that overlooks the Valley of Elon. and there's a western gate then that uh, kind of guards the approaches down to Philistine country on the coast. We sat around at the, the southern gate that overlooked the Valley of Elah. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that after David killed Goliath and the Israelites lit into the Philistines and drove the Philistines all the way back to the coast, the Bible says that the bodies of the Philistines were strewn all the way from the city of this place called Sha'araim all the way down to the coast. And you can look it up in your Bible, you can see it there, from Sha'araim. Well, here's what Sha'araim means in Hebrew. Two gates. There's no other city that's been excavated that has two gates. Because you don't want to have more holes in your wall. That's your main, you know, than, than's necessary. But the two gates. 
And so as we're talking about the, day, uh, the battle of David and Goliath, you know what I'm saying, hey, whereas it was in this valley of Elah that it happened, well, pretty much right out in front of us because if the bodies of the Philistines were strewn from this point down to the coast. So again, incredible historical accuracy. That's what we see. And we could keep going on and on and on and on and on about this. And so when we begin to examine the evidence, uh, what we see is just incredible precision. Well, that's what we'd expect to see if it's really a God book. And everywhere we look, the book of Acts. Uh, in the late 1800s, there was an archaeologist and a historian and a scholar by the name of Sir William Ramsey. And uh, he set out to do a very, very detailed topographical study of Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And, and, of course, he turned to the book of Acts because so much of the book of Acts takes place in Asia Minor. But Sir William Ramsey didn't have the biblical worldview that we had, and he thought Luke made a, a, a ton of mistakes historically and geographically. He spent 30 years, Sir William Ramsey, up into the early 20th century, he spent 30 years exploring meticulously Asia Minor. And so he started with the belief that the book of Acts is just chocked full of historical and geographical errors. After he finished 30 years of study on the book of Acts, he was like, holy cow, it's perfect. Every geographical reference, every historical reference, even subtle nuanced things that historians had never known before Ramsey's study, uh, all of it was perfect. Well, that's what we see in the Bible. That's what we'd expect to see in the Bible if it's really a God book. Then we get to things like uh, advanced understanding of, uh, of issues like medical and health and science and things like that. Uh, what we can say about the Bible and what I help people to see about the Bible is the Bible is not a child of its times. When you look at other ancient books that date back to the Bible's times, they are steeped in superstition. They are steeped in myth and in magic and... And, you know, they're terrified of, of divination and omens and all of that stuff. That's not what you see in the Bible at all. In fact, what you see in the Bible is uh, there are events. There are things that, uh, that would not really be understood, the significance of them, for centuries, sometimes thousands of years later, especially in the area of health issues. Things like washing, when coming in contact with sick and diseased bodies or dead bodies. Things like uh, um, uh, the disposal of human excrement and blood. You know, in the ancient world, most villages and towns were on settled dung heaps. I mean, that, that's just how it was. But of course, we know that the people of Israel, God commanded them to, to bury things like human excrement and, and blood outside of the camp. That's just, we read through that stuff and we see it and we don't even think about that stuff. That's so far ahead of its time that it isn't even funny. Uh, things like uh, uh, quarantine, the principle of quarantine. You don't even see that kind of stuff for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And you see it in the Bible. Uh, I asked my wife this morning, my wife sitting here is a labor and delivery nurse. I said, now, did you tell me, you've told me before that you give a vitamin K, y'all give a vitamin K shot in, pretty much immediately after a child's born, right? And she said, yes. And I said, now, why do you give a vitamin K shot again? Explain it. She said, to help with the clotting factor. She said, because the clotting factors don't really kick in at, at earnest until the eighth day. You, you remember when God commanded the people to circumcise their kids, don't you? And the old covenant people? The eighth day. And uh, now we understand. We can look back and go, wow, 
that's a, that can't be just coincidence because even Leola said, you know, we circumcise, parents who want their kids circumcised, we're doing it on the second and third day. And, uh, and so they have to have that shot of vitamin K to, to start the clotting process uh, so that they, you know, don't risk hemorrhaging and bleeding out. So all kinds of things. When you help people see this, and of course then there's the fulfilled prophecy. Uh, Oh man, there are so many things that we could talk about. The Bible that demonstrates it's a God book because it does only what God can do. You know, one of the things, one of the great texts in scriptures in the book of Isaiah, you see it in multiple places where God challenges the false gods that didn't say, okay, come on, trot them out here. Let's see if they're really God. And here's the test. Let them tell everything that came before. Let them tell everything that's happening now. Let them tell everything that's going to come in the future. That, that way we'll know that you're God. That's because God stands outside the flow of time. All past, all present, and all future is constantly in the consciousness of God. And so only God can tell what's going to happen. And fulfilled prophecy is one of the most powerful pieces of evidence that the Bible is what it claims to be. It's a God book. And you kind of walk people through that and help them see like in places like Isaiah chapter 44, where in the you know, uh, 7th century, uh, God through Isaiah says that he's going to raise up a man by the name of Cyrus. He even mentions his name specifically. And it's going to be through him that the temple in Jerusalem also is going to be rebuilt. This was a hundred years before the temple was even destroyed. And God talks about this person that he is going to raise up and use as an instrument to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So many things like that. And so we need to be literate on these kind of things. Because again, what, what's this all about? And what are these three sessions all about? These are preparing us to share the gospel with a world that is increasingly an unbelieving world. And there's a lot of good information out there. There's a lot of good resources out there. And I want to really encourage you to get a hold of some of those resources. Apologetics Press has a lot of those great resources. Uh, the, the, the evangelical organization Answers in Genesis has a lot of those great resources. There's a lot of great resources, but we need to be prepared because there are going to be moments increasingly, as I said, where you're going to sit down with people and you're going to want to share Jesus with them, but they're not convinced the Bible's what it claims to be. And so you're going to have to start in places with a lot of people that you never had to start before. Now, this wasn't even what the thing about, this was not even what my lecture today was all to be about. But it's over. I had 20 teal. I didn't even get to. Uh, so we're going to get to this tomorrow. Here's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. After I sat down and after I talked to people and say, okay, let me try to show you that there's a lot of evidence that supports the Bible's claim to be a God book. After we get through that, and if, and if their heart is open to that evidence and that they see that, a lot of times the next question they have is this. Well, I've heard that the Bible that we read, that it's not a translation of, of the actual manuscripts, the actual letters that people like Paul wrote. Is that true? And the answer is, yeah, that's true. Those letters, the, the one that Paul used, the one that when he put his little quill on that parchment or papyrus or whatever for the first time those things crumbled to dust long ago and so what we have is a translation of copies 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 and so people who are trying to undermine the integrity of scripture and cast doubt on the bible they'll say you can't even be sure that it has been uh preserved reliably you know uh i mean when you're going through that many layers and that many years 
of, uh, of passing it on and copying and circulating and all of that stuff, how can you even be sure that what we're holding in our hands today is what Paul actually wrote or Isaiah actually wrote or Matthew actually wrote? Can we really have confidence that the Bible has been reliably preserved? And the answer is, yeah, we can have confidence. And that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow morning. Let's pray as we end. Father, we are so thankful that we can come together in this incredibly gorgeous place. And we could take a few minutes this morning before we gather together as your people and gather around the table. uh, That we can take a few minutes and just think about your word. Father, we do know that we are living in an increasingly unbelieving culture. And Father, we, we understand the importance of being prepared for that culture. I pray that every person here will have a rekindled sense of equipping themselves to defend the integrity of your word. To be able to answer anyone who asks the question about your word. Is it reliable? Is it what it claims to be? That, that, that everybody here will have a, a renewed desire to equip themselves to help people come to a full confidence in your word. And so, Father, we pray that you'll bless these three mornings that we share together. We pray that you'll bless every session where you are taught, every session where you are glorified, every session where your word is explained uh, in the next few days, Father. And, uh, and Father, we, at the end of everything, we give you all the praise, all of the glory for who you are and for what you have done through Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.